turn also to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. That is our text for this morning. Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24. This also is God's holy word. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your word, and we thank you, Father, for the free offer of the gospel. Father, that you are the great king over all the earth, that the heavens and the earth belong to you because you created them. Father, we acknowledge that all of creation trembles, and all of creation will tremble, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Father. And we pray, even as we hear the summons from our great King, our Heavenly Father, that we would heed your word, that we would marvel at your kindness, at your mercy, at your generosity to us. Father, we thank you for your provision salvation, of forgiveness of sins and eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge, Father, that He is the only way. Father, we pray that He, Jesus, would be high and lifted up. We pray, Father, that if any are here who do not know you, we pray, Father, that you would do a mighty work, that you would transform hearts to respond with gratitude, in faith, to embrace the good news of the gospel. Father, we pray that we would not be those who make excuses, but instead that we would be those who respond accordingly, as you have commanded. And may your Son, Jesus Christ, be exalted. May your servant be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 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 How is it that you will respond if someone begged you to go to his party. You might start to wonder, wait a minute, why why are you begging me to go to your party? Well, what's what's wrong with your party? What's wrong with you? I mean, isn't this the the general tendency, right, when when others say, I got this party, you want to come? Yeah, sure. And then someone else, I beg you to come, you must come to my party. And, And these are all the great things of the party. Well, there's something wrong with you and your party. 
he realized that this is part of the re- reverse psychology. You think about some of these um, big-time crooks, right? We're talking Ponzi schemes, right, where people like the Bernie Madoffs, right? People were trying to throw money at him. It, they were saying, wow, he, he, he invests and he, he all the wealthy people, uh, he, he invests their money and there were people who were trying to throw their money at him that they could be part of this in crowd. He didn't have any advertising, it seemed like. Right? It's all word of mouth. Oh, you, you got your investment money with Bernie Madoff. And, and you think here about the gospel. And, and you, you wonder, did, did God think through the whole matter of this reverse psychology? Well, there's no wisdom lacking in God. What we have manifested, even in this passage, is the amazing generosity and the kindness that the great king over all the earth would beg sinners, would implore sinners to embrace the good news of the gospel. This is not a lack of wisdom at all. This is the humility of our God. This is the heart of our God being manifested. Even as the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he talks about how he is an ambassador, ambassadors manifest the heart of those who send them. And he says that we implore you, be reconciled to God. It's as if God were making that, that begging himself. I beg you, be reconciled to me, is what he's saying. And at times, it's so easy for us to forget for us to start to think from the perspective of reverse psychology. You know what, God? You've, you have all these generous offers and we're just going to push it off because we have better things to do. And well, wasn't that the point that happened in these excuses? We, we got better things to do with our time because you're just so urgent and you implore us. And you know what? <clears throat> we don't think that way. We're, we're better than that. We think about this, this context this passage in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. And if there's any group that Jesus was was firm and perhaps even harsh with, it it wasn't the tax collectors, it wasn't wasn't the outcasts, it was the religious leaders. That these are the people who had it really bad. Luke 12, he, he warns, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. They say one thing, they do another. Luke 13, verse 34, he addresses the matter, his lament over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Here Jesus is is revealing his heart. I wanted to come to claim you, but... You killed my prophets. You stoned them. You sawed them in half, whatever. You rejected them. Jesus is addressing the very matter of pride and complacency and a sense of entitlement among the Jews. And here he addresses this very matter regarding the invitation, the well-meant offer, the kind invitation, the generous offer to sinners. And based on the responses, he's actually addressing the Jews regarding their heart. So the truth that we see in this passage, rather than making impudent excuses, humbly embrace God's gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. 
Rather than making impudent excuses, humbly embrace God's gracious offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. We'll look at this in three points. The first, an exceedingly generous offer. Second, petty excuses. And third, drastic measures. So the first point, an exceedingly generous offer in verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. Here, Jesus was addressing with this passage the heart of the Pharisees, the heart of the religious leaders. He was addressing the pride, the complacency, the sense of entitlement that the Jews had. And the warning specifically was to the Jews 2,000 years ago. But it is as much a warning to Christians throughout time and to Christians even today. That this warning begins... It begins by addressing the lack of amazement, the lack of wonder that God's people have at His overwhelming grace. What? You mean that you who created the heavens and the earth, whom we have offended, whom we rebelled against, you mean that you want to invite me to the marriage supper of the Lamb? You mean that I who deserve God's wrath You're actually going to celebrate with me. You're going to call me to celebrate. Because your son is risen from the dead. Why don't I deserve death? Why is it that I don't get death, but you give me eternal life? If you've lost your amazement and wonder at this message each time you hear it, then this tells you that there's something wrong in your heart. You are sounding and you are acting just like these Pharisees who said, no, we're just going to push them off. No, we make excuses. It's okay. Uh, they're, They're just like the beggars that we see on the side of the road. That this message is just another peddling of another worthless item, trinkets. Is it trinkets that the Lord gives? It is certainly not a message of trinkets. We think about this offer, the custom of the time regarding banquets. <clears throat> you see the parallel passage, somewhat parallel, uh, Matthew chapter 22, the first section there, that there was a double, in, double in invitation given. Uh, first was to, to uh, preserve the day. <clears throat> we, we have that also where uh, if someone's getting married, they might send out some kind of email, save the date, right? So it might be six months or whatever time away. Uh, their, their second invitation, though, comes the day of. <clears throat> so the day of, you think uh, in their situation without, without refrigeration, right, the, the preparations would be far more difficult. You'd have to have far more people working at once to get all the food ready. <clears throat> so you, you observe the date. And the day of, they send out their servant, and he would go and say, hey, the party's ready to start. Come on, let's go. And uh, apparently in this situation, they've already responded to that first invitation saying, yep, we're going to go. And it was no big deal then for the servant to come by and say, hey, party's ready to start. And they're supposed, okay, I'm going to go put my best clothes on and show up. And here, this passage, 
uh, is an excellent illustration of what is called the gospel call or the external call. So, Elder Wayne talked earlier about the internal, the external call. So here, we have the gospel invitation. So, the scattering of seed. People hear the good news. People hear the gospel message. It's through this external call, through the preaching of God's word, through the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners, that the effectual call comes. And as the external offer, as this gospel call goes out indiscriminately, the Holy Spirit uses it to bear fruit in the lives of God's elect. We have in this passage the elements of the gospel call. We have a presentation of the gospel facts, of the doctrine of God's word. Here, we have in verse 16, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. We have a very simple presentation, a summary, a great banquet. Here, we might be thinking of something like the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, that God's people in heaven are celebrating, that there is a great celebration. The Scriptures command us that we would rejoice with those who rejoice, and we would mourn with those who mourn. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it's easier to mourn with people who mourn, to rejoice with people when they're rejoicing. That's going to be much more challenging. If you you think through your own heart, at times, when I got married, I sent out invitations, and uh, there were the friends of parents, and there were my friends. And the warning was, hey, Young men, don't don't think so much about inviting your friends. Think more about inviting your parents' friends. And and I I heeded that. But some of these friends of my parents, they said, we so want to come, but we are unable to rejoice with you. Whatever reason it was. Their own children, uh, not walking with the Lord, or not not having a a spouse, or not being married, they said, "We, we just can't. And... So they didn't come. We understand that principle. And here, what we have is the Lord telling us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He invites us to celebrate. So when when we have what we think would be a a great execution, meaning a massacre, the, the, the king is calling people saying, hey, you have offended me, you, you have rebelled against me. That you've broken my covenant. And what we're expecting is a mass execution. So a, a tribunal with a judge and a trial and a swift execution. Right? There, there would be no appeals process because you have the highest judge in all the heavens and the earth. There's no, no one to appeal to. Hey, here's the evidence. There's the verdict and judgment. But instead, what you have is, rebels, please come. I implore you to come. Celebrate with me. My son is risen. So you have the presentation of the gospel, historic facts. Very simple truth. The historic fact is that there is a man, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Historic fact can't be denied. 
But then the historic facts cannot be separated from the divine interpretation of those facts. Yes, Jesus Christ, there was a man who died on the cross many years ago. But the divine interpretation of those facts is that this man died in the place of sinners. This man died the very death that you and I deserve to die. He died in our place. He died in place of his people. He died a death which is called a substitutionary death. He didn't just die as a martyr. He, he died as a perfect sacrifice. You think about the, <clears throat> the manipulations, the changing of Christianity. <clears throat> Jesus didn't come merely to live this perfect life so that we can say, wow, we should live like he did. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came to die in the place of sinners. He suffered. He bore the wrath of God, the very wrath that we, we, we deserve to receive. <clears throat> and then there's the many are invited. The gospel call. The, the call is sent out. Believe upon Him. Trust in Jesus Christ. He died in the place of sinners. And that your sins can and are forgiven in Jesus Christ. So there's the invitation. Invitation, the command. Believe upon Jesus. And this command is based on God's authority. God is saying it. It's not my authority. It's not your authority. God commands it. The Great Commission. And that, that command, this invitation, is, is that statement, Come, for everything is now ready. Everything is now ready. Think about all the things that God had to prepare. And we're not talking about a banquet. Think about all the stories in the Old Testament, how they all pointed ahead. There was Abraham was told, sacrifice your son Isaac. Isaac has the fire and the wood. He asks his father, hey, these are all these things. Hey, where's the sacrifice? Hey, don't worry, son. God will provide. He provided the ram whose horns were caught in the thicket, ultimately pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. You think about all the, the temple, the temple sacrifices, and they all pointed ahead to Jesus. You think about all the prophecies about Jesus that were fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. All of this preparation was pointing ahead to that time when Jesus would be lifted up, offered unto sinners. And then there's the promise of the gospel. Not only the command to believe it, but the promise that everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ can and will be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life. And perhaps that question comes up in your own heart. Wait a minute. Are, are you telling me that the magnitude of my sins, all the, all the depth, all the quantity, they can and are forgiven in Jesus Christ? And the answer is yes, they are. If Jesus cannot pay for each and every sin, however bad they are, then He's not a Savior at all. So this is the promise of the Gospel. Think about some of the characteristics of this Gospel call. It is universal in scope. It's not that every human who ever lived throughout history will hear the Gospel. There's not, there's not that promise. Those who came before, right? Even those who came after the Gospel... <clears throat> No one has the right to hear the gospel, right? We, we can't claim rights. We, hey, we have a right to hear... No, we don't have a right to hear the gospel. This is a privilege to hear the gospel. 
But the gospel is freely offered to a great multitude indiscriminately. No one can say, God, you never presented me the gospel, and because of that, I cannot be justly condemned. No, everyone's justly condemned for their own sin. It's a privilege to hear the gospel. God sends it out to many. How much more, then, how much more is it, guilt-wise, for those who've heard the gospel and spurned it, and rejected it? So this is universal in scope, this offer, and is also a genuine well-meant offer. Some people will start to wonder, they start to do this rationalizing, well, wait a minute, if, if only the elect will be saved, then how, how is it the offer is good for those who are not elect? It's very simple. All we have to do is look at the teachings of Scripture and try not to play too many mind games with rationalization. You think about Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 9 that God desires that all would come to repentance. That, you know, Ezekiel talks about how God takes no pleasure in the judgment, in the condemnation of the wicked. God, God doesn't rejoice when people suffer. God desires that men would repent and embrace Jesus Christ. And so we ought to understand that this is a well-meant offer. So this is the first point, the exceedingly generous offer. We have the second point, petty excuses, in verses 18 through 20. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Here, consider... The excuses. They all can be lumped together. They all can be lumped together because the excuses are simply worthless. And you think about the the pattern, the pattern of excuse making. It began in the garden after the fall. That uh, Adam, after he fell, that his first excuse was this woman whom you gave me. Right? He said to God, this woman, you gave me this woman. He blames, he blames the woman. And the rest is history. That, that excuse-making goes on. This was, this was the beginning of sin, the beginning of excuse-making. They go together. And the warning that we ought to uh, walk away with here is that there is no and there will be no valid excuse before God on Judgment Day. You understand that? There, there, there's no excuse that you can claim to uh, that on Judgment Day will get you off the hook of judgment. Not at all. <clears throat> Children, I want to tell you this interesting story. When I was a kid, <clears throat> my dad would, would tell me sometimes stories about his life in Taiwan growing up. <clears throat> and when he was a, a child and he wanted a snack <clears throat> before bed, he'd flip on the light in the kitchen. And he said that he typically would see two types of, of uh, creatures. One was the cockroach. <clears throat> the cockroach would scatter. And, uh, and then the, they would scatter, but then they weren't, they weren't very good at hiding. right? So they would try to get under things, but they can't. right? Uh, or, or, or then you have the spider. The spider with the dark brown or maybe the black body on the white wall. So he flips on the lights and, and they just stand there on the wall and say, hey, I'm this black spider on this white wall. I'll just stay still. You won't see me. 
right? <clears throat> well, see, these excuses, <clears throat> these excuses are like the cockroaches and the spiders, right? They, they're not good at hiding. They can't hide. There's no hiding before God. Now, I'm going to tell you, the other thing that he told me about, most interesting, was this lizard. Tell me about this funny lizard. That you flip on the lights, those little insects scatter. But he said this lizard, oftentimes, when he flipped on the lights, this lizard would hop and land right on his face. <laughs> and then he would have to flip the thing off, off his face. Now, in response to the gospel, so the gospel is the light. The light goes on. The lesson here is, don't be the spider. Don't be the cockroach. You be that gecko. The light goes on, and the, and the gecko goes towards that source of the light, or, or the, the reason why the light goes on. That we're going to go towards the gospel, not make excuses about it. So we consider some of these excuses, and they're all found lacking. The first one, I bought a field, and I must go out to see it. Oh, perhaps they had back then the problem that we have now. We have a shortage of housing. We have, we have a, a, a seller's market, right? So, hey, how do things work now, right? Things work, they go in cycles. So, uh, house goes on the market. Well, it's almost as if you have to put an offer in before you see it. And then, then you go see it, and you say, oh, shoot, I, I didn't like the, sh you know, the, the, the hallway and this kitchen, so that, hey, sorry, I rescind my offer. It's a seller's market. You know? Other times they have different methods. Well, no. See, back then he, he didn't buy the sight unseen. He would have seen the field. Right? Then you think about the party. Parties don't happen for breakfast, like you know, these banquets. They don't happen at breakfast time. They happen you know, later in the day when things, the sun sets. Right? So what's he, what's he going to see out in the field? Huh? He's, gonna see, he's not going to see much. Right? It's like uh, for some of you older people. It's like in California when I was out there, people who lived on the coast, right? They're sitting in the car, they knock on the window, hey, what are you guys doing here? Watching submarine races or what, right? <clears throat> so, got kids, ask your parents about that. <clears throat> so, so here, you can't see a field at night, it doesn't happen. You didn't buy that, that field sight unseen. And here, we summarize this excuse. The excuse is that of the possession of material wealth. The material wealth, the possessions that God has given us, that they obstruct our ability to serve and worship our God. Have you ever wondered about this? These blessings that you gave me, I come to cherish them more than I cherish the giver. That there's so much wealth, and there's so much freedom, and that all the time in the world he had to see that field. But here comes the banquet. Sorry, can't celebrate. I've got I to do my stuff. Possessions and wealth. And the warning is, you cannot serve both God and mammon. One will be supreme. And your response, your response to the free offer of the gospel, your response to God's commandments each day, every day, Reveals who is your Lord, mammon or God. You have the second excuse. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Perhaps another version, 
He says, I go to test them. So I'm going to put these animals to the test. Again, this matter of testing the oxen. Did he not test them before he purchased them? Is he going to test them at night? You, you see people plowing fields at night with oxen? Doesn't seem like it. And uh, here, what we have is the excuse of occupation or industry or profit. Right. So God calls us to be diligent. So uh, he who does not work shall not eat. This is a very great principle because it comes from Second Thessalonians 3. He who does not work shall not eat. It's a very good principle. But that principle doesn't get applied so much that it eliminates our worship of God. Because we have uh, the idea of the, uh, the, the Eighth Commandment, right? We shall not steal. We also have the rule of the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. We cannot use one commandment in place and superior of another one. You think about God calls us to be industrious. He calls us uh, to work, to be diligent. Yes. But it must not, must not ever come in the place of serving our God. I've heard this before, <clears throat> where people talk about how, oh, you know, work is very busy, and I'm, I'm trying to advance my career. You know, sometime later in my life, maybe after I retire, then I will spend my time serving God. You know what? That time will never come. That's the warning. That time will never come. Because, number one, either that person who works that hard, that many hours, he will probably have some kind of heart disease or other health issues before he retires. The Lord will take him. Or he gets to his retirement, and then he has his, his, uh, his boat, he has his summer house, he has his grandkids, then the next excuse will come. You see, excuses just beget excuses. Right? So... If you try to plan Jesus into your retirement, it won't happen. It won't happen. It's like, it's like planning, planning your tithing when you start to make more money. No, your, your spending will rise to, to meet your income. It's not going to happen. If Jesus is worth worshiping and following, he's worth doing it right now, today. And the third excuse, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. We have a modern version of this. You get an invitation to a wedding, and then in the invitation is a wedding invitation response card for you, already there. It says, John Doe plus one guest. Right? Isn't that how it works? John Doe. It doesn't say John Doe plus five guests, but unless you're very special, then it's John Doe plus one guest. So this person just got married. Hey, I, I think the wife would actually enjoy being brought out, dressing up, and then enjoying a nice party. Hey, I, Everything sounds in favor of he should have brought his wife. There's no excuse. Bring her along. So this is the summary of the excuse of relationships. Oh, I, can't, I can't follow Jesus because my wife is an avowed atheist. Or, hey, uh, what would my wife think about it? She, she's not religious. Well, bring her along. See what change it may cause. Or, hey, my, my husband was very much against that. Well, this is part of prayer and trusting that God is the one who, who plants the seed and changes hearts. 
We must never allow relationships to come in the way of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So we look at these excuses. You distill them down. None of these excuses are substantial. They're actually all insults to the host. Whoever said them, they've insulted the host. Have have you ever been in a situation where something went wrong and uh, you've concluded it's better that the person gave no excuse than that he gave an excuse? You understand that situation where if they said, hey, sorry, I missed it, it would have been better off than if they tried to make some real petty excuse like these. It's better you leave the petty excuses. That's what's happening here. All of these excuses seem to indicate that the, the person invited meant to say no, but they said yes to save face. And so we see in the free offer of the gospel that our God is far more ready and willing to save man than men are willing to be saved. You realize that? God is so kind, that He is so generous, the gospel is so great, that God is more ready to forgive and to receive us than we are ready to be received by God. That Jesus is far more willing to suffer and die on the cross than man is ready to receive the benefits of it. That's the truth. That we don't, we don't come to realize this great debt of sin if we're not amazed by this offer. Notice also these excuses being offered. None of these excuses had anything to do with something that's flagrantly sinful. The person didn't say, hey, I, I'm going to go whoremongering or I, I'm going to go stealing cars so I can't come to your banquet. No, it wasn't anything like that. We're all called to be good stewards of, of the goods that God has given us. We're all called to be diligent at work. We're called to, to, to foster relationships. None of these are flagrant sins. But what we have here is a neglect of the Lord. A neglect of His commandments. A neglect of prioritizing what God has commanded us. So these are the petty excuses. We have also the drastic measures in verses 21 to 24. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of, these, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. <clears throat> so how did the host respond? We're told in verse 21 that the host responded with anger. And this is how God will respond on Judgment Day when the excuses start to come. And the conclusion that God has there in verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. It's so easy for those who have been 
part of Christ's church for some time to slip into this same pattern of thinking, the same mode of thinking as these Jews. These Jews thought, you know what, God? You are so blessed to have me as a worshiper. You ever, you ever start thinking that way? God, you are so blessed to have me as a worshiper. Don't, don't think that way. Don't think that way. We are so blessed to have God as our God. That we ought constantly to be thinking, What? God, you have given these things to me and I am undeserving. Let me think about all the things that I actually deserve, that I actually earn from you. And all of those things are having to do with God's wrath and His judgment, which I did not receive. But instead, I have His favor, none of which I have received, or all of which I do receive each day. So here, God's anger will be manifested against those who spurn His invitation. Here we have in verses 21 and 22, He he changes then. He changes the terms of His party. So he says to his servant, Bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Do we still use evite.com today? Uh, maybe, maybe that's out of style, but I remember back in the 90s, it was, it was this big deal. <clears throat> so someone invites you to a party, <clears throat> you can see the list. All the people were invited. You see them respond. Yes, no, maybe. <clears throat> So you know who's going. So back then it was a big deal because, hey, you want to go to the party? You've got to think about who's the host. And back then, <clears throat> you received this hard invitation, right? Just a card. You don't know who else. Hey, you can't ask the host, hey, who else is going to your party? I want to know so, so I can go. Or, or I can decide where not to go based on who else you invited and who else is going to go. But then with Evite, right, you, you got to see, hey, these are the people going. And eh, so-and-so is not going. You know what? <clears throat> I'm not going to go to your party. <clears throat> well, here... Maybe all this gets fleshed out when the host says, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And, and these Jews, they're finally thinking this very thing. Hey, this is the very reason why we aren't going to your party. We're not going to your party because we don't go to parties of rejects. Pause for a moment. What I've said Sounds very insulting in our modern age, PC, right? We say certain things here. I'm, I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to make a point here. Think about Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. The rebuke that God gave to the church in Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Here, if we start to forget who we are outside of Christ, who we were before Christ, that is the very reason why we come to spurn the commandments of God and His invitation. When He says, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, what you ought to be saying is, that is me. That is me that Jesus has called. He's rejected those who are proud. He's rejected those who are righteous. That Jesus came. He said, it's not the healthy who are in need of a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. I came not to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. And then we should not be saying, hey, 
We're not going to go to that party because we don't go to parties with rejects. What we should be saying is, God, nobody responds to your offer. Nobody responds to your offer. There is no one who does righteous. No, not one. Except God compels them to come in. And that those who are there celebrating that we are all the rejects. Not many wise. Not many powerful. Not many wealthy. That God is the one who calls those who are not. That we might be those who celebrate with Jesus Christ who is. And if we've forgotten that, we've forgotten who we are before God. We've forgotten the good news of the gospel. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. This is the message for spiritual beggars. Let us not say, no, I have great wealth. I have, I have many zeros uh, on my bank account. No, 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 no. This is saying spiritually. Spiritually. We who are poor, spiritually poor, have been offered bread. Jesus, the bread of life. What is evangelism other than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread to eat? We're telling others, hey, this Jesus, he is the bread of life. He gives us hope. You who are poor, you who are blind, you who are crippled, we can find true hope in him because he restores us. He gives us new life when we had only death. Understand also the heart of God in all this. Free banquets does not mean a cheap banquet. When you're offered a free gift in our society, what people tend to think is things that are free are things that are cheap. There's another usage of free. Something that is free is something that you don't pay for. And in general terms, people don't give out things for free. What God gave was not free in the sense that it was cheap. It was costly. It cost the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's of infinite value. The free banquet, the free offer of salvation is free, and it's priceless, but it's free because you cannot pay for it. That's precisely why it is free. You are unable to pay. There's another misunderstanding. That when someone is begging, it means that someone is helpless. God implores us that we might believe upon Jesus Christ and be reconciled to Him. But it doesn't ever mean that our God is weak and powerless. He begs us in His kindness He begs us that we might be reconciled to Him because He takes no pleasure in the death and condemnation of the wicked. Here, we have to see that your excuses, my excuses, must be put aside. When God commands, we must be ready to obey, ready to listen. There are all kinds of excuses that we can come up with, but none of them will hold water. None of them will be of significance when Judgment Day comes. There's also a warning to us who've been in the church for a long time to think, you know what, God? You haven't given me what I want. I'm not going to give you what you want. 
Well, there's a very simple answer to this. God simply says, you know what? I'm looking for worshipers. And if God's people refuse to worship Him, then He says He will move on. The Gospel goes to another group of people. We cannot hold our breath and think that we can threaten God. We need to have the right heart. We need to have the humble heart that says, Lord, You are always worthy of our worship. That we cannot hold back anything from You. That You possess all. And that we always should be rejoicing at Your generous offer. That Your Son is perfect. That You sacrificed Your perfect Son for the life of that which is imperfect. And that we should say that this message is always great news to us. And because of it, anything that we have is worthy of sacrifice. That we might embrace this good news and trust in Jesus Christ. Will we go to Him in prayer?